Welcome to the Geriatric Journal Club, featuring practical discussions on the front line of PALTC issues that you wrestle with every day. References for this podcast and links to previous recordings can be found at paltc.org slash journal club. Statements made by guests on this podcast are their own opinions and are not necessarily the position of the society. Speaker's appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them, their views, or any entity they represent. Have you joined AMDA's new initiative called Drive to Deprescribe, Optimizing Medication Use in PALTC? Learn more at paltc.org slash drive, the number two, deprescribe. Support for this podcast is brought to you by U.S. Post-Acute Care. Well, hello everyone. It is the top of the hour and I welcome you to our um, Florida Medical Directors Association Journal Club. Um, today is July 28th and we are going to be talking about variants, vaccinations, and the ongoing um, SNF preparedness that we need to, to um, be engaging in. And we have a dream team you know, better than their, um, the Denver Nuggets, right? Um, a dream team from Colorado, Dr. Leslie Eber, who's the immediate past president of CMDA, and Dr. Singh Pallet, who is the current president of CMDA. I'm not going to bore you by reading their whole um, bios, but I will just say that both of them have been leading efforts at Colorado and nationally, um, doing a lot of work with their strike teams and, um, with their, with their um, state governor's office. You do know that um, Dr. Eber has worked with um, AMDA to push out the vaccine um, toolkit. So we're, we're just um, very fortunate to have them on with us. I ask um, anyone who's not speaking to please mute themselves. And I'm gonna turn it over to um, you Singh so that we can go ahead and proceed with everything. All right, I think I'm sharing my slides now. Is that correct? You are. All right. Thank you. And thanks for mentioning the, the Denver Nuggets, because we were just talking before this started how Leslie and I are both under five feet, one inch. So I think we would be excellent candidates for the next players for the basketball team. <laughs> we're really glad to be here today and bring our experience and perspective from Colorado here to you in Florida. And we're very glad and honored to be here for the FMDA Journal Club. So we know that this week the CDC has made a great point of telling everyone, reminding everyone that there's been a rise in COVID-19 cases, hospitalizations, and deaths. The outbreaks are in parts of the country that have low vaccination coverage. And a lot of these worrisome trends are due to the rapid spread of the highly transmissible B1617 Delta variant. And this is all information that's available on the CDC website and let me show you what a picture of one of those graphs that they have available for us looks like. Um, this one looks at the increase in COVID cases in the United States. The blue bars on here show the daily number of cases, and the red line is the seven-day moving average, so the number of cases in the last seven days divided by seven. And you can see at the right side, you know, towards July 25, the last week or so, there's been a sharp rise in both of those numbers. Another way to look at things right now is the level of community transmission. This is a new concept for me. 
but the CDC is saying that the level of community transmission is based on the incidence and the positivity. So in other words, the number of cases in the last seven days per 100,000 and the number of tests in the last seven days that have a positive result. And on this map from the CDC, they have, have it broken down by state with red having the high community transmission, orange being substantial, yellow is moderate, and blue is low. And you can see there, Florida is definitely in that red high community transmission rate right now. The CDC has mentioned that a lot of this rise in cases is related to the Delta variant. And definitely you can see from this graph that the proportion of Delta variant has risen in the last few months. So this graph shows you the proportion of each variant that uh, contributes to the COVID-19 cases. And starting in April, going all the way through now in July, you can see the portion of that bar of the orange, which is the B1617 Delta variant has risen and grown substantially until this week where they're reporting an 83.2% of COVID-19 cases that are related to the Delta variant. So I'd like to take the next few slides to show you some of the information that we've learned about Delta variant here in Colorado and how the state has asked the nursing homes to respond to this threat. Now, I don't represent the health department at all. I'm just a, a physician and nursing home medical director. Um, this is information that they've made available and public to everybody. So here in Colorado, um, we have a county on the western side called Mesa County. It's kind of a rural area. And on May 5th, the first cases of Delta were identified based on a school outbreak. Within a few weeks, by June 15th, seven long-term care facilities in Mesa County were reporting outbreaks that had the Delta variant. By July, 42% of all the cases in Mesa County were found to be due to the Delta variant. And in this past week, when I looked it up on the website just yesterday, it looks like now in Colorado, 48 out of the 64 Colorado counties have reported cases of Delta. So this is definitely a virus and a variant that has been spreading very quickly just in the last few weeks. And this graph shows you a very interesting correlation between the COVID-19 case rates and the vaccination rates here in Colorado. And every count, uh, all the counties have been mapped on these graphs. And on the x-axis is the vaccination rate with the higher vaccination rates on the right. And the y-axis is the case rate, the 14-day case rate, higher rates going up, of course. And you can see basically there is a correlation with higher vaccination rates and lower rates of COVID-19. And you can see there's a very um, distinct outlier, Mesa County, that we were just discussing, where even compared to other counties with the same vaccination rate at the beginning of July, they had a very high number of COVID-19 cases. And this was definitely thought to be spurred on by the Delta variant. And what they learned here in Colorado, just based on the preliminary information here in July, was that right away it's apparent that this Delta variant has increased transmissibility. In fact, they estimate it was probably 50% 50, 50 more transmissible than the Alpha variant or the B117. They were observing substantially higher growth rate than other variants, even in India. The potential reduction of some of the treatment efficacy, either monoclonal antibody or convalescent plasma, the effect was reduced when facing the Delta variant. 
And it looks like right here in Colorado, we noticed right away that there was a possible increased severity, including hospitalization, compared to someone who has the alpha variant. And I believe that this has been confirmed to be the trend in other states as well. So the question, of course, is, well, do these vaccines for COVID-19 work against the Delta variant? And this is a slide that was compiled by the state of Colorado. And I'll start right in the yellow box. And overall, it looks like, at least in the labs, the antibodies seem to be less effective, the antibody response less effective when someone has a Delta variant. Um, it's unclear what that correlation would be with the real world protection in terms of the vaccine. There is a possible decreased vaccine effectiveness, and there is an unclear clinical or population health impact. But the overall message is that still, full vaccination does still provide protection against the B1617. And how do we know this? Well, the, the information and the numbers in the graph above. So looking just um, at the vaccine effectiveness for symptomatic and hospitalized disease of B117, which is alpha variant or the, the variant initially identified in the UK, and also the B1617, which is the Delta variant. And you can see the numbers for Pfizer were 93% efficacy, 87.9% and 96% efficacy for hospitalization. If you look at the other vaccines studied here in the US, the Johnson & Johnson, they're reporting an 85% efficacy against severe and critical disease and protection against hospitalization and death. And so even though we do see that in the lab and with the neutralizing antibody levels that perhaps there's a decreased um, effectiveness for Delta variant, but overall, we still consider the vaccines effective against COVID-19 and effective against the Delta variant. I just wanted to highlight this article from the New England Journal that came out recently, and they looked at how as we as a community can look at vaccines and their efficacy against Delta and other COVID-19 variants. And one of the key points was that how reliably an immune biomarker can serve as a correlate of protection is not yet known. So our laboratory studies don't always correlate with the real world or what we see clinically. And ultimately, we don't just want to keep people from contracting the variant or COVID-19, but that the most important vaccine effect is the prevention of severe disease. Another question came up about what happens if someone who's taking a two dose series of either Pfizer or Moderna only takes one of the doses. Uh, New England Journal recently published this to look at it, um, a study of 19,000 sequenced cases in England. What they found specifically for the Pfizer vaccine and specifically against the Delta variant was that after one dose of Pfizer, there is a 356 percent efficacy against the Delta variant. That's quite low. But after the second dose, that efficacy increases up to 88%. So a clear effect was noted with high levels of effectiveness after two doses. So definitely want to encourage people to finish the two dose series. And if they're worried about the Delta variant, that there is evidence that it can protect them. Here in Colorado, between May and June, because of the Delta variant in some counties, including Mesa and the surrounding counties, what the state decided to do was ask the facilities who are in counties at a higher risk for Delta variant to implement an enhanced infection prevention. 
And just this past week on Friday, they announced that basically all of the Colorado facilities have to follow these guidelines. And the enhanced infection protection prevention, sorry, is now just a standard part of the mitigation guidance for all of the Colorado residential care facilities because of this rise in the Delta variant. And what some of the components of this enhanced infection prevention include are that just starting last Friday night, and basically everyone's scrambling this week to get this implemented, is that all the unvaccinated staff and residents who have left the facility in the previous 14 days are required to have a rapid testing for COVID-19 daily, or at least at the beginning of their shift if they're working there. So if they're a staff member, they would test with a rapid uh, either antigen or rapid molecular test at the beginning of their shift. And if they're a resident who has left the facility in the previous 14 days, they must do rapid testing every day. And the PCR testing is also required, and it's either one or two times per week based on the county's positivity rate. And specifically for the staff members, at least, this is for unvaccinated staff. And um, the vaccinated staff are exempt from this testing. They also want to make sure that every facility who is testing for COVID-19 is able to do uh, genome sequencing of their specimens. So if they're using a commercial lab that doesn't do that, they have to switch over to the state's lab. We're also requiring that eye protection for unvaccinated staff members are used when there is an outbreak or outbreak testing is initiated. And they also removed language that previously allowed for crisis standards of care for the use of PPE. And so at this time, we're not doing any extended use of N95 masks, for instance. So a lot of questions have come up about, you know, the, the staff and the residents who are vaccinated and what are their chances of having breakthrough infections. And we know that the vaccines are not 100% effective. So breakthrough infections are expected. And when they do happen, they don't mean that the vaccine has failed. The vaccine is meant to prevent severe disease, and most breakthrough cases that we've seen and heard about are asymptomatic or with just mild symptoms. Basically, um, all the hospitalized COVID-19 cases at this time are unvaccinated individuals. And the AMA um, quoted from the CDC just yesterday that with more than 156 million Americans fully vaccinated against SARS-CoV-2, approximately 153,000 symptomatic breakthrough cases are estimated to have occurred as of last week. And the percentage that that represents is 0.098% of all those people that are fully vaccinated. So that's very encouraging, I hope. And we just have to realize that with more people being vaccinated, we will see more breakthrough cases. But again, that does not mean that the vaccine has failed. Um, do you agree with that, Leslie? And I'll, I'll go ahead and turn it over to you at this time. Sure. You know, I think we can also fold in the um, information that was released today about um, the CDC encouraging everybody who, especially if you're in a community where there's a lot of spread of COVID-19, that when you're indoors, even if you're vaccinated, you should wear a mask. And the reason why that is being recommended, which I think is very important, 
is that even though you're vaccinated and you could get through a breakthrough infection, if you do get a breakthrough infection, you could have enough viral load virus in, in you to spread it to somebody else. And so they just wanna make sure, even if you're vaccinated, that, and even if you are protected against severe disease, needing a hospital bed, needing a ventilator, that when you're indoors, you should now wear a mask to make sure that if you were asymptomatic and had one of those breakthrough cases, you wouldn't spread it to your friends. So, <laughs> thank you. Next slide, please. So this is one of my most favorite uh, recent articles that I thought was so apropos to our space. And it talks about what are the clinical factors that affect COVID-19 outcomes in nursing homes? And that's something I wanna know. This was just published on July 13th. And they talk about the risk factors for getting a COVID-19 infection was associated mostly with the facility that you're in and the surrounding community. So the size of the facility was the largest factor for getting a COVID-19 infection. But then the risk of dying or having a, a severe outcome from COVID-19 was more related to the individual who now has that infection and the health of that individual. I thought it was pretty interesting what they found out. First of all, they said to be really careful when considering cardiac and respiratory disease because there's such a high prevalence of those diseases in our entire population. We know that um, chronic kidney disease and dialysis is definitely a risk factor for a poor outcome from a COVID-19 infection, especially in our patient population. Ironically, a high Barthol index score, which has to do with the independent mobility, uh, um, was independently associated with an increase in mortality. That, uh, on a first blush, that would not make a lot of sense. Well, the person is healthy enough to walk all around the facility, they should do better with a COVID-19 um, infection. What they surmised is that maybe that increased mobility caused increased exposure to the COVID-19 virus, maybe an increased viral load, and it was increased um, associated with an increased mortality. So that was kind of a surprising finding. And then they confirmed what we've all suspected is that dementia is also a significant risk factor for mortality if you get a COVID-19 infection. And I think that we can use this information to educate our staff members and, our, um, and ourselves about what the risk factors are when COVID-19 enters our facility, which of course we hope it does not. Next slide, please. So I thought we'd talk about tools to create an effective COVID-19 in-service for your staff and facility. What should you be saying on uh, July 28th that would resonate with the people you're talking with? Um, so first, a couple of tips. Um, ensure that the person talking, doing the in-services, someone that the staff members trust and that they know that we has been proven over and over again when we study what moves people in this um, age with the COVID-19 vaccine education and COVID-19 education, consistently staff members have said, if it's somebody we respect and we know has medical knowledge and we know that's the best person to do the presentation. Um, uh, what I've been doing with my in-services in my facility where I'm medical director is doing a COVID-19 update and then folding in the vaccine education. Um, sometimes when you say you're going to do COVID-19 vaccine education, 
nobody wants to come. <laughs> so this is a way to combine both. And people are curious as to what the situation is in their facility. What should they know about the COVID-19 infection right now? Always be honest and transparent. Do the education at the nurse's station. I just go nursing station to nursing station so no one has to move to meet me. I also then don't have a, a crowd of 50 or 60 people in one room, which seems kind of unsafe. So that's, I think, the best way to do this. You can list help from your medical director. It's really important that when we open up these doors of communication again and again with um, all the studies have out there is that we don't want to be pejorative. We don't want to shame or judge or make people feel bad if they have a question or they're not vaccinated. We want to open the doors of communication and trust and invite people in. Next slide, please. Hmm. I don't know where that is, but it looks lovely. <laughs> Next slide, please. <laughs> okay, so let's talk about um, the six elements that I find to be effective to folding in to doing a COVID-19 in-service right now. So first thing I do is update people on the Delta variant. We are not done yet, but we have much better tools now. So I like to fold in the reality of where we are with a bit of hope as well. I think that that combination um, really resonates. So usually when I start my in-service, I say, so first I'm gonna give you the facts about the Delta variant, but then we're gonna look, talk about what tools we have, what things we can do to keep ourselves safe. I do start often with uh, this um, quote from Dr. Catherine O'Neill. The Delta variant is not last year's COVID-19 virus. This is a new deal. It's become incredibly apparent to healthcare workers that we are dealing with a, a different beast. I think that that's imperative that people understand that this is not the continuation. We have stepped it up in terms of transmissibility. Um, it's more infectious, more dangerous, and more deadly. Those are things we know. I give information about where I'm standing right now. So we are in Arapahoe County and I give some information about that. Right now, our uh, infection rate and do we have the Delta virus? Um, we do. And so those things are important. Those are things that people want to know about. Next slide, please. So then the third thing, I know that there's a lot of information on this uh, slide, is to fold in that COVID-19 vaccination protection. Um, all three of the COVID-19 vaccines that have you, um, EUAs are effective against COVID-19 variants right now during the Delta, and especially for the Delta variant. It is our best tool, it will save our lives and the lives of people we care for. One of the things that I always try to fold into my in-service is to connect with people. They have been here to care for individuals. That's kind of their calling. And so kind of aligning our information when we give it with the fact that you are caring for people and that is important to you. So how can we do that in a safe way? I usually right now only give two statistics. Um, and these are probably a week and a half old, so forgive me. 97% um, of the people in the US who are hospitalized are unvaccinated and 99.3% of the people who die from COVID-19 now are unvaccinated. So that's a very compelling two statistics for considering getting vaccination. I'm also really clear with what we were hoping the vaccine to do. Um, we want it to, again, I know that uh, Singh has already gone over this, we want to, for it to present, prevent severe disease, hospitalization, need for a ventilator, and death. 
I continue to say that because I don't want people to grab on to these breakthrough cases and say, oh, the vaccine isn't worth getting. I don't need to get it. Um, and we talk through sometimes some of the questions that people have. Oh, I've already had COVID-19, so why should I get the vaccine? We answer those questions. Some people feel what I'm hearing these days is, well, you know, I've survived in this arena for a year and a half and I haven't gotten COVID-19 yet. I'm, I seem to have a super immune system. I don't need the vaccine. And we talk about that too. Um, we wanna make sure that what's most important is to prevent people from becoming deathly ill and dying and spreading the COVID-19 vaccine. We again fold in, you are caregivers. And so we want you to be able to do this to the best of your ability. We also talk about, at least in my facility, I've got two nurses who are going through chemotherapy. And I do remind them that we want to protect those nurses too, because they are immunocompromised. My getting the vaccine protects my colleague, and that can resonate as well. Finally, I do always want to mention if we don't want any more variants, the best way to prevent that is also to get the COVID-19 vaccine. You can do your part from preventing future variants from arising, and that can also be a compelling reason. Next slide, please. So number four is specific concerns about from your staff, why should I get the vaccine if I've already had COVID-19? Um, there's also a, um, on the AMDA website, the AMDA Vaccine Toolkit, and it goes through some of these questions and answers so that you can have specific um, bullet points to answer some of these questions. This is the question that I'm answering for this slide. Um, if you've already had a COVID infection, we really don't know how long your protection will last or how much protection you get you have against these new variants like the Delta variant. The immunity for the COVID-19 vaccine appears to be more durable and protective, especially against some of the variants. Um, and the COVID-19 vaccines have undergone numerous trials and we continue to monitor their immunity. So we're going to know if you're vaccinating vaccinated, how long your immunity will last. We can give you some really good hard data. Some people say, well, I already have antibodies. I did that antibody test. We know that those tests are not always very accurate and should never be used for a decision to, about getting the vaccine. And we're not even sure, just as Singh had said, what those antibodies mean. Are they the correlate to protection? Some people say that um, T cell cellular immunity is really more important. And so, um, we're not sure what this test means. And finally, on July 14th, just uh, 14 days ago, they published a really good um, paper in JAMA that showed that vaccinating people who have had COVID-19 infection substantially increases their immunity and gives them strong resistance against variants of concern. That is compelling. We now have proof that if you've had the COVID-19 virus and you get vaccinated, You've got great immunity. You do yourself quite a service. Next slide, please. So then the fifth element is to always talk about what we expect for the future, what we think is coming down the road. You know, when they study um, leadership and leadership uh, communication, they found that this element really speaks to people, your staff, your other providers, so that you frame the conversation so that they know what expectations are. So the things that I say in my facility, which you can also say is that we have incredibly diligent and dedicated leadership team at our facility. 
We want to hear about your concerns and questions. And we have your back. We are invested in you, in your health, in the health of your family. I think it's important to say that out loud. Everybody wants to feel valued and they want to feel like they have a voice that's respected. And so saying that out loud can make it so that collaboration and engagement with your staff becomes easier. And then I talk about what the current regulations are now for infectious control in our facility. And for the state of Colorado, they just changed. So we have those conversations about what the new testing strategies and recommendations are. Next slide, please. The last thing I do is give some tips on how each person in the room can make things better. I want to empower people to know that they can individually make a difference. If you're vaccinated, be, still be diligent. Wear your mask if you are indoors. If you are talking to an unvaccinated friend, colleague, uh, family member, and they're unvaccinated and you see an open door, tell them why you got vaccinated. Tell them your vaccine story. We know those personal stories right now are much more effective than any statistics or data. People have had enough of the data dump. They want to know about you as an individual. And if you have questions, ask them. I may not know the answer, but I will do my very best to find out what it is. And that kind of reveals that we're in it together. I don't know everything about this. We are learning together. And then the last thing, which I found to be really uh, profoundly um, effective and resonate with all of us in the room is to let all the staff members know that they should be proud of what they've done. They've saved lives. They've helped the most vulnerable of our society. They've made a difference. They've been people's lifeboat. They've made the community a better and safer place. And I think it's important to say that out loud. And then I thank everybody individually. Next slide, please. And now a word from our sponsor, U.S. Post-Acute Care. Let's talk for a minute about goals of care conversations. Now more than ever, post-acute clinicians should initiate these discussions with their patients. At U.S. Post-Acute Care, our clinical team is committed to regular goals of care conversations with each seriously ill patient. We help our patients to think through their goals and express what's most important to them. Now we can develop a care plan that aligns with their goals and their values. Using a technique first developed by Ariadne Labs, these structured conversations have shown meaningful improvements in the quality, cost, and effectiveness of care. Our chief medical officer, Dr. Kevin Henning, is highly committed to making the goals of care conversation a foundation of effective care for our clinical team. At US Post-Acute Care, that's what we think. Now we'd like to know what you think. You can reach us at uspostacutecare.com or on LinkedIn, and Dr. Henning will be happy to respond. Thanks for listening. One of the things that I found to be really effective is to activate people's agency. Agency is the ability to, of an individual or a group to choose to act with purpose, acting with purpose. That resonates with our staff. They are there to do good. You need both power and courage, courage to act in the face of difficulty and uncertainty. I think that we have met that criteria with this current pandemic. It's difficult and there's a lot of uncertainty. And to act in that moment and to empower people that it is their choice, but they can choose to act to make things better. Understanding each person has their own agency to make their own choice. 
And things you can say, by choosing to get the vaccine, you're helping us keep everybody healthy. Those type of sentences, they have a positive, hopeful message, and they can move people to get vaccinated. Activating someone's agency, it can be appealing to their expertise and their pride of work. I think we always have to remember and honor that everybody, every staff member standing at that nurse's station and in healthcare and health services and social workers and um, housekeeping and maintenance, um, they all have expertise. They bring expertise to the table and pride of work and engaging in that is very helpful. And it was respectful and the right thing to do. Next slide, please. Um, I've created a template and um, I will have Diane make it available to all of you. If you want to write out a COVID-19 in-service for your facility, kind of these six elements. And I also included the website for AMDA to answer any other questions. What about misinformation? What about infertility and pregnancy? We have um, up to date, up to last Thursday, including the ACIP information um, on um, let's try something new. PowerPoint, so you can get up-to-date information for your answers. And next slide, please. Um, here's the information for the AMDA Vaccine Education Toolkit. And next slide, please. Thank you very much. We really appreciate being here today. It's been an honor. Thank you. Thank you, um, Leslie. Thank you, Singh. Um, you guys see now why they are the dream team. We already have some questions in the chat. And the first is um, from um, Kimberly Jackson. Uh, she stated that in Florida, it's been the vaccinated staff um, who, who are exempt from routine testing who have largely been triggering outbreaks in the, in the SNF. Um, the facilities that elected to continue routine testing all staff have been evading outbreaks in the last two to three weeks. And it's more of a comment, but I, the question that I have around this, if you can maybe um, hit again on unvaccinated versus vaccinated um, um, staff members um, testing and the transmissibility following receiving um, vaccines, I think that'll be helpful. Sure. Cindy, I'll go first and then you can uh, correct anything I got. <laughs> oh, no, yes, please. <laughs> um, so we've been talking a lot about that in Colorado too, because some facilities have noted that their incident case was a vaccinated staff member. And I think what we have talked about with our epidemiologists and with the strike force team is that sometimes we're not quite sure if that is our incident person. It may have been a visitor or a, a person who delivers things that may have truly been the person who brought it into the building, and we may have not captured or tested that person who may have been unvaccinated and kind of um, spread that, uh, that infection to our facility. So I think we have to be very careful to understand that that may not be the incident person. One of the things that um, the head of the CDC just said this morning, and I, I think actually she said it also yesterday afternoon, is that we are seeing that people who are vaccinated, if they get that breakthrough infection, they can have a significant viral load. It's not very common, but when they get um, a breakthrough infection, they can, they seem that they can pass it along. And I think the take home message here is twofold. First of all, when we're indoors, we all need to be more diligent about wearing our masks, whether we're vaccinated or not. That is the way to protect our facilities, our beautiful patients and each other. And 
if you're vaccinated, you are still really protected against the, the terrible things that we're seeing in hospitals, the need for ventilators, people who are so young who are passing away. Getting vaccinated is still worth it. And I think we need to spread that message as well. Singh, what are, you, what are your thoughts? No, that's beautifully said. Um, I was also thinking about the, the viral loads in people who have been vaccinated and how they're just as high as people who haven't been vaccinated. Um, not meaning that you shouldn't get the vaccine, you still won't get sick, but yeah, you, if there's a transmission risk because the high viral load, we might see that right in our nursing facilities. And I think it's really telling part of that comment was about how um, continuing routine testing for all the staff at least for, you know, for, thank you, Kimberly, that this is working to um, help prevent outbreaks in the last few weeks. And, and that has been shown time and time again. The CDC has some information about facilities who test on a regular basis, prevent outbreaks, and, and do better ultimately in terms of fewer numbers of people infected compared to buildings who wait for an outbreak to happen and then start testing. Yeah. And let's you may have hit on this, but just so that we're clear, um, I just want to make sure if we are given the fact that our the state of Florida's positivity rate is 17.3%, should we just be testing everyone regardless of them being vaccinated or unvaccinated? You know. You know, I, I think that that would be a reasonable choice, I have to say, because of your in, uh, positivity rate over 17%. Um, I think each individual facility or your uh, group of facilities have to make your own choice, but I, I think it would be incredibly reasonable to test everybody. Um, and frequently, we know that the more often that you test people, it, the better your outcomes are going to be in terms of prevention of a true outbreak. So that in the state of Colorado, we've seen that on our front range in places like Mesa County, when they started the point of care testing for unvaccinated staff every single day, they really did catch number of staff members who were positive. They did a PCR to confirm. And those folks did not enter the building. They really believe, and it seems logical, that they prevented further outbreaks. I think in the state of Florida, testing everybody would be eminently reasonable. We had a question about uh, vaccine efficacy rates. Um, it was noted that Pfizer um, first and second dose were mentioned. Um, do you have any information about Moderna and um, Johnson and um, vaccines, and I'm assuming uh, against the Delta variant. I know there was a slide on that. Can we maybe um, go back to speaking about that so that we could get clarity for, um, um, I believe Valerie Rodriguez asked the question. Yeah, I think that's a great question. I know people who've gotten each one of those vaccines. And the particular study that I referenced did only look at Pfizer and um, AstraZeneca. This was a study done in the UK, specifically looking at um, responses to the Delta variant. From what I understand reading just in the news is that Moderna and Johnson & Johnson um, have in data that they are presenting from their, their companies actually. And it, they're not peer reviewed studies that are out to the public yet. Um, but the general message that they're telling everyone is that they consider themselves effective towards the Delta variant. And if, you, if you have other information, please let me know. That, that's all I know as well. <laughs> yeah, that's all I know as well. So I think we all know the same thing. Um, another question that came in, should we do antibody tests for immunocompromised patients who have been vaccinated? 
That's a great question. <laughs> That's just an amazing question. You know, the ACIP just had their meeting last Thursday and kind of dove into immunosuppressed um, folks and do they need a booster um, and, you know, some of the studies that have already been published. So some of the studies for a patient, whether they've had uh, solid organ transplants and that's how come they're immunosuppressed or whether they have immunosuppression via another way, we... There have been data that has shown that one, and even with the second dose vaccine, that their antibody response is kind of minimal sometimes, and up to two thirds really uh, may not really have a, a significant response. Don't quote, don't quote me on that percentage. Um, and that a booster shot can really make one third of those folks who didn't have a great response uh, previously with the first two doses of a messenger RNA vaccine do get a substantial uptick with that third booster dose. I don't know if you are doing antibody testing not with the NIH CDC with a known good antibody test that is reliable um, and sensitive and specific, if you could use that to make that type of decision. So there are, are two caveats here. I think that um, antibody tests right now in the general public should not be used to make any decisions about vaccination. And we are still waiting for the FDA to either modify their EUA or give us some guidance about booster shots, a third shot for immunosuppressed patients um, and staff, um, whether we could do that. Right now, it's not recommended, and we don't have an EUA to do that. Um, so we're waiting. We're waiting about boosters for us all. We're waiting about boosters. I think they will come out first for the immunocompromised patients. I don't think that they'll be based on an antibody test, though. I don't know if you have anything to add before I go to the next question. Uh, no, just uh, same as Leslie. I think we had reviewed with our ECHO cohort last week um, a study from the Annals of Internal Medicine looking at people with immunocompromised due to organ transplant in the regimens that they're taking. And, and they were pleased to find that even those people who after the first two shots had not mounted an antibody response, after a third shot, a booster, uh, many of them did. So there certainly is a role. Um, but I couldn't tell you yeah, what levels to target or how to use those tests either. Yeah. Um, we had a question that came in about patients on um, drugs such as Humira um, um, or other drugs that may suppress your immune system. Do you recommend that those um, residents get vaccinated? Um, uh, do you want to go first, thing, or do you want me to go first? Dealer's choice. <laughs> oh, my gut reaction is that um, there's certainly no contraindication for people to get the vaccine if they're taking a medication like Humira, um, just with the caveat that they may not mount the same antibody response as someone who's not on that medication. So they have to be aware that they may not be as immune as the next person, and then just be, to be on the lookout for any recommendations, of course, for that third shot and that booster and how to go about it, what the protocol would be. Have we seen any um, studies on um, residents, patients who may be on immunosuppressants um, and like utilizing the Johnson & Johnson or um, maybe um, if they're the UK AstraZeneca, have we seen any studies on how they respond? I, I have not seen any studies. It may be that I just missed it. <laughs> it might be one of those studies that I'm hoping for and dreaming of, but it, it may not have come out yet. <laughs> um, I also would, um, I agree with everything that Dr. Pallett has said. 
Um, and I would just add that certainly a conversation with your doctor who is providing the medication with your oncologist would be really appropriate. And even after you get maybe that two series or the Johnson & Johnson, I would encourage those folks to continue to really be diligent with the other precautions, wearing a mask, washing your hands, doing some social distancing. Um, and those other um, interventions can be really important with this patient population. We had a question from Dr. Zorowitz. Um, he is interested in knowing what do you see in your crystal ball for both of you about the upcoming flu season, given the rather mild season we had and the effect of having masks and socially distanced during the past year? That is definitely a Dr. Zorowitz question. <laughs> um, they actually discussed this yesterday at the AMDA Grand Rounds with two different infectious disease doctors. They asked them, and they're certainly smarter than me, um, that about what they see. And both of them had talked about, and the CDC had published an MMWR on this, that we're seeing an increase in RSV infections nationally. Um, and we're seeing a little bit of an increase in flu, even during the summer. So we know that we were protected last year against the flu season, against other respiratory viruses. We've seen other respiratory viruses now kind of come to life a little bit because people are taking off of their masks, um, you know, adenoviruses, RSV. Um, and so I think it is concerning. And I do wonder if people don't wear their masks, they certainly may not wear them as much as they did the previous season, if we will see an uptick in influenza. Um, and I also think that there is a new paradigm that in our facilities, we should look at um, triaging our respiratory illnesses this season very differently. First, of course, we wanna rule out COVID-19, but we probably shouldn't stop there. We should also look for a, if you're COVID-19 negative and you have a sore throat or a fever or a cough, we need to make sure that we're doing those flu um, tests to find out the person has influenza and those respiratory panels to find out what's going on. I also think it's an opportunity to implement what we've learned from COVID-19. And if we have someone with flu, we isolate them. We use our PPE. We already have it. We might as well protect people against influenza and COVID-19. Perfect. I'm gonna um, ask if you, if anyone on the call has any questions, um, you can either take yourself off mute and ask or enter them into the chat. Diane, this is Shan Starkey. I have a question. Um, I know everything's vaccine, 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 and that's all we see, and I'm certainly pro-vaccine, but I'm a field educator for Regenco monoclonal antibodies, and I mean, they play such a fantastic role for these patients that are mild to moderate, keeping them from progressing to hospitalization. And of course, all the nursing home patients would qualify just because of their age. I don't understand why everything, and, I ha and I'm working, I have the whole state, so I'm working diligently with this, with the ERs and stuff. Why aren't we using more monoclonal antibody treatments. I don't understand it. I mean, they're such an advantage and they're free, totally 100% free. Yeah. Can somebody explain that to me? Leslie Singh, I think this has been the, and, and um, 
this has been one of those things I think we've been talking about at every call that I join because um, it is um, alarming that we're not using more, but we've, I know there's also been challenges in um, getting them into our facilities and um, maybe um, Leslie Singh, you could speak to um, what you've seen and heard about and, and you know, I, I think it needs to be in the conversation. So I'm very happy that you brought it up. And I'm very happy to, now Diane, you're in Florida, so I will do everything. All, all I need to do is have your contact information. I will do everything to facilitate getting, Amerisource Bergen is the only distributor, getting it into all of our facilities. And I even know infusion companies that are willing to go to the facilities to infuse the patients. Wow. Or workers. Yeah, well, we're going to get your information. Um, definitely. We're, we're um, you know, I, I had, um, there was a case where someone was diagnosed on a Monday, the order was placed for monoclonal antibodies, um, which we were hoping, um, you know, after learning about it, that it was, they were going to get the fusion by at least by Tuesday, which they did not. And the person was, um, the person had expired um, by Wednesday morning. So whatever we can do to expedite that treatment, um, you know, it, it, it does work. Uh, I have had family members who had um, that. We've had patients um, in, in nursing facilities and ALs who've had it, so we know it works. Um, I do want to, I want to give Singh and, and Leslie an opportunity to talk about what they've seen and heard as well, um, you know, because I know this came up even last night on the Grand Rounds. Um, so, uh, you know, I've had, um, I, I completely agree with you. Um, we should use monoclonal antibodies. They should be offered for residents and staff and anybody, whether they're vaccinated or not, as long as they have mild to moderate disease and they don't have an increase in their oxygenation needs or they're not you know, acute mm -hmm. having severe disease and needing hospitalization. So it's kind of a fine window and definitely facilities need to be uh, coordinating with their providers to make sure that we go after that window. I think that they are profoundly helpful. I think also with the Delta variant, we found that some monoclonal antibodies no longer work and are not um, FDA approved anymore. Because So right. you have to be careful that you're getting the right one. Well, Regencove is definitely approved and it does cover that variant. So that's the only one right now that's available in Florida. Oh, yep. that's great. Um, I can tell you that from my own personal experience, I, at my place where I'm the medical director, we had a patient who had very, very mild disease um, and it took about 10, 12 hours uh, over the next uh, two days to figure out how to facilitate it. We had known about obviously monoclonal antibodies. It was just like Diane, we had requested them very quickly, but then um, our long-term care pharmacy was having trouble obtaining it. Um, we ended up using an infusion center, the University of Colorado, which was phenomenal, and they really facilitated and helped us, but it was a long road to make it happen. You have to be highly motivated, um, and she got it just in the nick of time, just like Diane's story, she had very little, almost no symptoms, just very few. And then within 24 hours, started having a fever, started having a cough. She was on baseline oxygen, but didn't need any additional oxygen. I feel like we just snuck her in under, <laughs> just in time. She got her monoclonal antibodies and she did magnificently. She did great. 
Um, I promote them with everyone. I think people forget that even if you're vaccinated, if you have an infection and some mild disease, you are a candidate for monoclonal antibodies. I think we have to remind people about that. Well, each of you now has a representative. We've been in the field now about two months. So you have a face to this drug. And let me tell you, we will work so diligently to help you that I think it will take a lot of stress off of you or your pharmacy director. All, all I need is a list and I will get you to the, per to the person who, has to, who is your representative. Can you put your email address or contact information in the chat? Um, There's I, now, only 15 of us yeah. in the country. Yeah, multiple people are asking for it directly. So <laughs> if you can, that would be great. Okay. I thought I did. I'm so bad about, about this. How do I send it? If I, hit, if I hit two and I put two everyone, how do I, how do I get it to go into the chat? We can just press return and it'll go in. Um, and if you if you can't, we'll get it to everyone who's on the call. We'll make sure that everybody knows it and put it on our in our COVID library so it's, it's there. Um, okay. I want to make sure because we are we have about ten minutes left. Um, does anyone else have any other questions? Any other comments? Um, now's the time. I just want to comment also on the monoclonal antibodies. Um, I. Uh, every time I hear Leslie's experience, I think gosh, that's so hard and such a disservice to our residents. Um, if you work in a nursing facility, um, it is imperative that we know what our protocols are for getting monoclonal antibody when we need it. Because as we know, when someone does get ill, you only have till 10 days after their symptoms to give them effective treatment. And that is not the time to start making a protocol for getting monoclonal antibody. Um, I'm on a stakeholder advisory board for the University of Colorado monoclonal antibody task force and um, I've learned so much about some of the barriers for getting monoclonal antibody out there to people including in our nursing homes where just like the vaccination clinics um, just bringing vaccines to people doesn't mean everyone's going to get them all of a sudden protocols understanding the barriers understanding how to help uh, make it go smoothly that's all so important to think about ahead of time and I don't think that we've got great protocols in our skilled nursing facilities. Out in the community even, it's also a tough barrier. Um, we've had um, infusion centers actually stop giving MAB because of various reasons. There's just not enough uptake. Um, in one community, the local infusion center, um, the people who utilize the infusion center for other reasons, refused to go there if they were giving out monoclonal antibody to people who were COVID positive. They didn't wanna mingle with people who had COVID. In some communities, once someone's diagnosed with COVID-19, their first reaction isn't to seek treatment, but just to stay home and not tell anyone that they have it. Mm -hmm. And so there's some messaging issues. There are some issues with protocols. And um, I think all of that is, is so fascinating and unfortunately has created barriers for getting this treatment out there. Well, you have somebody now who will help you. So I, I, I got it on there. Thank you for telling me how. And I will put you in touch with the 
face-to-face -face rep. I am a nurse. Not everybody is a nurse. I'm an RN. But we will make sure that we help you. We have a big program that we've just, a big focus we've just started in Palm Beach County with an infectious disease and the di director of the health department. And I mean, we're just like going full force. How can we help you help your patients? So we're here. Perfect. Um, Dr. Kaplan, I believe you have a question or a comment. I do have a question. Thanks, Diane. And a great presentation, uh, Leslie, and saying thank you so much. Um, what is your threshold? How do you approach uh, distribution or PPE when you have an outbreak of an isolated case on one wing, okay, on one of your units? And let's say you have four or five units. Uh, when do you decide to go to full PPE, et cetera? Because I've seen that all over the board. Um, in my facilities, I've been trying to encourage people to be very aggressive based on prior literature, et cetera, that shows, especially with those asymptomatic cases, once you have one or two, you've got it probably all over the place. Thanks. Go ahead, Leslie, for anyone to address yeah. that. No, thank you. No, I think that's, that's great to, to hear that. Um, and I know that there is a lot of variability on how each facility responds. Um, from what I understand, there are different recommendations from CMS and sometimes from the states and even local counties on what needs to be done. And so first have to know what the bare minimum is for your region and your location. Um, so in my counties where I have facilities, um, and because of the, the facility layouts of the buildings where I go to, it, it would be impossible to just quarantine one wing or one unit. And so almost uniformly, we're doing it facility by facility. And I know that can be so intense and um, tiring for the staff and, and strain on the PPE supply. But right now, the, the, the buildings where I go to, I know are doing the whole building at a time when it's time to use PPE. You know, and some of the facilities that I go to are similar that we just, when we get our first case, Everyone starts using PPE really for the whole facility because you can't divide it up. We do our first round of staff and resident testing. And then if we don't have any additional cases that makes us feel a little bit better, it may be that we can do a, just a part of the facility. Um, but often that is very difficult. With a bigger facility that I go to, it is possible to say, okay, so this is really just one wing, one nursing station. We can close it down and isolate them. We can use full PPE in this one section. Again, we're going to do our first round of all staff, all resident testing. And if it's just in this one unit and we can isolate it, we're going to do uh, – you know, continue to do full PPE here and then monitor. We're doing then testing all residents, all staff every three days. Um, we have to do that for three rounds um, until we have no cases. And then after that, we do outbreak testing to resolve our outbreak. And in the state of Colorado, what that looks like is we do testing um, seven days apart every week, all residents, all staff, um, for three straight weeks until we can resolve our outbreak to ensure we haven't missed the boat. I think it's so easy to miss the boat. Um, and so uh, I think that um, if possible, 
with your first positive, it is great to do PPE for the whole facility until you at least get that first round of testing. That would be my perfect world recommendation, um, if it's possible. And then you can make decisions based on every three days of your testing, all staff and all residents, you're gonna have a better picture of what's going on. Um, but I think PPE for the whole facility is the safest thing to do. Thanks. Well, no, I'm glad that. Oh, go ahead, Thane, go ahead. No, I was, I was going to say that just, I'm glad you have a building that's big enough where they're able to do that. Um, I know that even in big buildings, the staff go from one unit to the other. Um, they have to grab that extra Foley catheter. Um, where's that the Tylenol supply go from place to place and, and, and that sometimes that's avoidable. And by the time we do shut down and, and quarantine off different sections of the building, um, so much mingling has already taken place. What about for the clinicians who are, we're, you know, how we sort of scatter right. back and forth sometimes, how, how are you approaching um, those clinicians when, when you're seeing an outbreak or even that one case? I mean, I think that Singh brings up an amazing point, which is, you know, <laughs> per usual, um, that, uh, um, what we've been trying to do in our bigger buildings, and we've been really talking, that's why we go nursing station to nursing station, is to really kind of silo those nursing stations, that everybody has their own Hoyer list, everybody has their own um, emergency uh, e-kits, so that we're not kind of going place to pace, and that even food service, they drop it at the door. So we're able to really shut it down that you can't even walk inside the building from, you know, nursing station A to nursing station B so that you'd actually have to go outside. So um, that we really try to, especially when our positivity rate in our community was so high and we knew that the chances of it getting into our facility was really high, that we really try to isolate each nursing station very prescriptively and talked about it with the staff to have them understand why are we doing this? Are you just trying to be, you know, kind of mean? <laughs> and so uh, we really wanted to educate and um, do multiple information sessions about how come we wanted everybody to be kind of their own secured unit. Um, with our uh, providers, you know, we really also, via email from the medical director, talk to them about this is our situation at our facility right now. This is our positivity weight. This is if you go from one um, station to the other station, we want to make sure that you're doing due diligence. You have your mask on. You're making sure that you're doing hand washing between facilities. You're getting screened before you even you know, enter our facility. We're understanding your vaccination status. Um, and that if you're not vaccinated, you are part of our testing protocols. And so I think that the um, education of our providers is equally as important. Perfect. Thank you. Well, um, I, I, I thank both of you. Um, thank you, Singh. Thank you, Leslie. This has been wonderful. I know there was a question about protocols uh, for monoclonal antibodies. We, we did a presentation on that a few I don't even know, a few forevers ago, um, but we'll try to find it and, and get it to you, Dr. Zorowitz. Um, again, thank you both. Thank you very much. This was a wonderful presentation. Um, so thank you guys for, for speaking to Florida. Thank you so much for having Thanks us. Thanks for having us. The handout will be made available, everyone, so don't worry.
Support for this podcast is brought to you by U.S. Post-Acute Care. References for this podcast and links to previous recordings can be found at paltc.org slash journal club.